Well, good morning, church. All right, so we are diving into a new series on pina coladas. I actually asked someone to say, are we serving those today? That'd be good, right? Yes? No? No. All right, so I want to start off with a couple of questions. Are you ready? Say amen. Amen. All right, say, we're going to do a little Spanish here. We're going to do a little Spanish. Say, (laughs) yo trato. Say, say, estoy lleno, if you've ever eaten too much. Yeah, that means you're um, full. So we could do this. uh, We could do the next one in Spanish, too. Say, alto, or stop, if you ever drank too much. All right, very. Say, does this ever end, if you've ever slept through a sermon? Oh, come on, come on, it's okay, it's all right. Let's just confess together. Raise your hand if you've ever drank too much, smoked too much, gambled too much, gone dancing, listened to some rock and roll. If you're a guest here or watching online, you know we're not a Baptist church. (laughs) Say amen if you've ever given into some temptation you should not have. All right, look at this room. You need a bunch of healing in this room, that's for sure. (laughs) So, amen. All right, so when I was growing up, I used to spend my summers in Pennsylvania. I'd go there. It's where all my family was there. And I, we'd go and spend some time with my Uncle Tom and Aunt Sharon. And, uh, you know, it was all the cousins, lots of cousins, 17 cousins. We'd get together, and we'd always have, you know, little hamburgers and barbecue at night. And inevitably, we'd run out of something. So my uncle, my Uncle Tom, would say, come on, kids, let's all pile in the car and let's go get the groceries. And inevitably, if you've ever driven through Pennsylvania, you know that the, most of the roads are designed by drunk Indians, okay? Because it just goes like this, and there's tunnels. You've got to honk before you go through it, and there's another car coming this way. Just sort of crazy. But my uncle didn't care about all that. All he cared about was an excuse to go fishing. So he would pile us all in the car, and we'd drive along. He'd say, oh, my gosh, look at the stream. Kids, we have to stop. Now, don't tell your, don't tell your mom. Don't tell your mom we're going to stop. Just tell her we got delayed at the grocery store, okay? You swear, pinky swear, and we all did that. And then he would gather out his fishing rod, and he would teach us how to do fly fishing. And he would say things like this, son, to catch a fish, you got to think like a fish, okay? To a fish, this is what life is. Life is like see a fly, get the fly, eat the fly. That's life for a fish, they're just, they just want to maximize their eating and minimize their energy, sort of like men. Absolutely, yes. Anyhow, I thought that was funny. He, he said, a rainbow trout never reflects on where their life is headed. A girl carp rarely says to a boy carp, I don't feel you're as committed to our relationship as I am. I wonder, do you love me for me or just for my body? Fish are just a collection of appetites. A fish is a stomach and a mouth and... Two pairs of eyes. And while, while we're on the water, and I always think this, whenever you're fishing, do you ever wonder just like just how dumb fish really are? Have you ever thought about this? I mean, I mean, you throw this thing out, it's plastic, and it's not real, and you're telling the fish, hey, swallow this. It's a lure. You think it will fill you up, but it won't. It will trap you. And if you were to look closely, fish, if you were to look really closely, you'd see that there's a little hook. And you know that once you know you're hooked, just a matter of time before... You get reeled in. You'd think fish would wise up and notice there's a hook. You'd think fish would look around and go, no, no, we saw Louie last week. Louie grabbed on one of those and he's gone. Never saw him again. We say fish swim together in a school, but they never learn. Aren't you glad we're smarter? 
Pina coladas. Who here likes pina coladas? Pina coladas, yeah. Bunch of heathens. Pina coladas are made with these, church. And what, what, what is this fine-looking thing, church? What is this, church? Pineapple. Pineapple. Now, if you go to your local bar today after this service, uh, after and you need a drink after this sermon, you may. Um, they will give you, and you say, I'd like a pina colada. They're, they're going to give you maybe some, some uh, pina colada mix. It's going to be in a mix, right? And they're going to mix it up, and they're going to put some rum in there, and you're going you know, to think it tastes great. But I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't taste great, and here's how I know this. I got to go to uh, Costa Rica a couple years ago. There was a couple that wanted to get married, destination wedding, and they said, Pastor John, you're the only one that can do it. And I, I agree, Absolutely. Um, I said, I am the only one. And if you ever have a destination wedding in Costa Rica, Hawaii, or any place like that, I'm the only guy you need, okay? I'll go. Now, I expect you to pay for everything, but hey, I'm, the, I'm there, okay? No charge for the wedding, but my room and everything else. So anyway, they got us this little, me and Renee, they got me and baby doll, this beautiful little casa right on the beach. I mean, literally, it was like 15 feet, and you're in the water. You could hear the waves rolling in. It was gorgeous. They had this little resort thing, and they're like, would you like... We get there, and it's all the groomsmen and me, and the girls go off. I don't know what they did, shopping or something. I don't know, whatever. So they're like, they come to a little bar, and they're like, would you like a pinja colada? And I said, see, see, see. But they did not take out a mix. No, no. Because the national export of Costa Rica is this, pineapple. And you have not had pineapple until you've had a Costa Rican pineapple, until you've had a plate of fruit from Costa Rica because it was the best fruit I've ever had. And so I tasted one sip of the pina colada, and I said, this is like faith food. It helps me believe in God. <laughs> it tasted that good. It was, it was just like amazing. So I found myself one more, and I found myself one more, and I found myself one more, and then I found myself on the floor. <laughs> yes. I don't really remember exactly how many I had. My debit card says one thing. I don't know. Do I believe it or not? I might have bought someone else a drink. I don't know. Next, all I know is the next thing I woke up in the, in the morning, I woke up in the morning on a hammock. I don't know how I got there. I was on a hammock in the resort with this big, like, lizard on my chest. They're everywhere. And Renee's like, are you getting up today? No more pina coladas for you on the trip. But now, the reason I share all this is to say that uh, I do not need to drink pina coladas, first of all. Second of all, I want to tell you a little interesting history about this that I'm holding, this uh, pineapple. Because actually, it relates to temptation, which is what this series is about. It's about temptation. Christopher Columbus first spotted those spiky crowns of the pineapple in uh, 1493. Columbus and his crew took the pineapples back over to Spain, and everybody was like, oh, my gosh. They loved it. It was exotic. They had never tasted anything like it, and they tried to grow them. But pineapples need a tropical climate to grow, so Europe and Europeans did not do so well. Because they were high in demand and low in supply, only the extremely wealthy could afford pineapples. Monarchs such as Catherine the Great and Charles II 
even commissioned an artist to paint himself with some pineapples. You can Google that painting. Uh, And pineapples came to symbolize luxury and opulence and wealth. In the American colonies in the 1700s, pineapples were no less revered. Imported from the Caribbean islands, pineapples that arrived in America were very expensive. One pineapple could cost you as much as $8,000. Can you imagine today, you go to H-E-B, I'll take two pineapples, 16 grand, sir. The high cost was due to their perishability. They were exotic and they were scarce. Now get this, affluent colonists, right? Colonists that lived over on the drive of the ocean, right? You know who I'm talking about. People that have, you know, million-dollar homes. These are the colonists that had the million-dollar homes. They would actually get a pineapple and it would be the centerpiece for the party to show I got money. To underscore how lavish and how extravagant pineapples were, you could actually get this, not buy it, but you could rent one for a night. I'm not making this up. The first, it it evoked such jealousy that people could, if they wished to pay, they could actually rent a pineapple for the night. And before eating them, people would, people would actually rent them, and they would walk around the party with the pineapple to show, I've got money. Now, it continued like this until pineapple plantations uh, popped up all over Europe, and they figured out how to grow them um, in, in certain ways, and now they grew them in mass quantities. And the funniest thing happened when, when the pineapples finally showed up everywhere, No one wanted them anymore because everyone could have them. And so I bought this pineapple on Friday for today for like $3.50. You can get a can of pineapple chunks for $1.99 at HEB today if you'd like. When's the last time you went around going, hey, look at my house. I've got pineapple. Now, stay with me, because you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with anything, aren't you? Just go ahead and say amen. Yeah, stay with me, because this is important. What everyone could suddenly have very cheaply, no one really wanted anymore. Now, let's think about, let's think about sexuality today. Think about sexuality today. I talk to my, my, my boys sometimes about sexuality, and they don't want to talk to me about it. Dad, shut up. We already know everything. YouTube. YouTube. So then I'm like, YouTube and sexuality, what? What are they learning? I mean, my sexual education consisted of finding a stack of Playboys, as you know, getting all excited, hiding them under my bed, my mom finding them, spanking me, saying, show these to your father, which I did. And then he said, are you interested in these sort of things? And I said, yes, I am. (laughs) And then he hands me a four-set encyclopedia called Your Body and You. That was exciting. That was my sexual education. But when you talk to people today and you talk to young people, and I do a lot of weddings, I I have premarriage counseling today after church today with a young couple that's coming in, and they're all excited. They're all Twitter-pattered. We're going to get married because we're so in love. (laughs) You're actually in lust, but we'll hope we get to love. 
But sexuality today is like pineapples. We live in a swipe right culture. I actually have someone say, what's swipe right mean? I'm like, well, forget it. It used to be, I told my kids, that in order to actually get together with someone, you would actually, you know, like go on some dates, you spend some time together, maybe date, maybe meet their parents, you know, maybe even fall in love. But now it's just, hey, I like the way your picture looks. Do you like the way I look? Swipe right. And let's meet up. And it's not for coffee. I had to explain this to the 9 o'clock. Do I have to explain it to you? It's a very different world. Sexuality is raw, and it's powerful, and it's everywhere, and it's temporary. In sex, what God intended was one man and one woman, naked, unashamed, in one lifetime. It was rare. It was special. It was beautiful. That's how sex should be. But now with sex, it's like pineapples today. It's like pineapple chunks in the can. It's everywhere. It's cheap, and it's readily available. Don't look at me funny. You should have seen the way the 9 o'clock look at me today. (laughs) I'm 82. What are you talking to me about this for? (laughs) It's hard to write a message for the 9 and the 9. Two different groups. But there's almost a sense of fatigue and despair and, and just sort of turning away from God's masterpiece. So let me just speak to the young people in the room for just a second. I know that. An old guy like me wouldn't have any wisdom around this. But I've talked to young men, particularly young men about sexuality. I I try to talk to young guys, and they'll say things like this to me. And maybe you've heard people say this. Well, Pastor, before I get married, I I gotta sow my wild oats. Have you ever thought about what that really means? Yeah, Pastor, I gotta, I gotta, you know, I gotta get it all out of my system. Go wild and crazy. Woohoo! And I say, well, we forget that you don't get things out of your system by doing them. You actually put them into your system. Well, pastor, that's a real bummer. I want to talk to somebody else. So let's not reduce God's gift of sexuality to pineapple. But that's what we've done in our culture. And that's what we've done. That it's just sex is sort of like a can of pineapple chunks. It doesn't mean anything. So are you still with me? So I want to give you a story about dating and marriage that's in the Bible, and I actually sort of share this story with couples, and they look at me sort of funny like you're looking at me today, but it's okay. It's a shocking and unbelievable story, and it doesn't seem real, but I can assure you it was very real. It involved a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob fell in love with Rachel, and the Bible says he had eyes for Rachel, and Rachel was very good-looking. Uh, and, and she was the daughter of Laban, and she had a sister named Leah. And the Bible basically says Rachel was pretty and Leah, eh, not so much. Jacob promised Laban, his uncle, hey, I'll work very, very hard for, for seven years in return for your blessing to marry Rachel. I want to marry the pretty one. Long story short, Jacob worked seven years And it ended in a feast where Laban was going to give Rachel to Jacob in marriage. Now, we don't know much about this party, but we do know there must have been an open bar and a lot of pina coladas. Uh, And how do we know this? Because in the next verse, but when evening came, Laban gave his daughter Leah, not Rachel, to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. Oops. I don't know if you caught that, but... He made love to the wrong one. 
Now, how drunk do you have to be to not notice that the woman you're making love to is not the one you just got married to? Yikes. Now, even though cultures have changed and thousands of years have passed and things are done very differently now, the same exact thing could actually happen to you. You would think you're marrying Rachel, but you wake up one day and discover you're hitched to Leah. And as time passes and the fog of deception lifts, you might discover that what was on the outside wasn't the same as what is on the inside of that person. Is this making sense? Hello? So I'm not here to tell you to kiss dating goodbye. I think you ought to, but you ought to really fight for the honor of what it means to date somebody uh, and do that with integrity. So the easiest way to marry the wrong person is to rush, rush, rush. Why is it so tempting to rush things forward? Because infatuation can be mistaken for love. Think back, married couples in the room, the first time you saw your significant other. First time I saw Renee was at summer camp. I had just met Jesus, and now I met Renee. <laughs> there was actually a guy that was going to date her, was going to marry her. They were writing, this is before email and text. He was, he was writing letters to each other. They were writing letters. And Renee was like the only adult female that showed up all summer. And so he goes, there's Renee, there's my future wife. And I said, game on, brother. <laughs> what? Well, she's the only eligible female in the camp. You've got a head start. You've been writing love letters. But anyhow, we all know how that ended. He's actually a pastor today. His name's Stephen Ostendorf in Pennsylvania. I don't know what it is with Renee and holy men, but it's kind of weird. Anyhow. <laughs> Anyhow, when you have infatuation, you get all Twitter-pattered. It's like that scene in Bambi, right, where she gets all Twitter-pattered. You get love drunk, and it's so powerful. It's very spellbinding. So rushing to Vegas or rushing to the courthouse or rushing to my office, so let's go to the beach, pastor, and do it, that seems like the right thing to do. And those feelings that you have are good things, but they're just not enough to build a life on. No one can sustain that high forever. It will kill you. Instead, date each other long enough for the fireworks and chemistry to either dissipate or mature. To do that, you'll come to a place where you realize the person you're dating isn't perfect. How many of you remember that moment? <laughs> then you can either move on or you can choose to commit to loving a person who's obviously not perfect. And the reality is you begin to see them for who they really are when all the shininess and newness has worn off. In the infatuation phase, you can't trust your feelings and you should not rely on them as a substitute of physical intimacy to guide your feelings. So you have to ask kind of questions like, what do the trusted godly people in my life think of the relationship? I'm not talking about your cousin who's been married 10 times or the guy who sleeps with everything. I'm talking about your pastor or your grandmother who's been married 67 years or your parents. What do they think of the relationship? You might object, and I hear this from couples, but they're all wrong. It's a conspiracy against our love. No, if your cat says it's a bad idea to be in the relationship, listen to your cat. So if the people who all love you are saying the same thing, there's probably a reason if they say things like, I don't like the effect they're having on you, or they're pulling you away from God, that should be like red blinking lights on the dashboard. When and where did you meet? What did you truly have in common with each other? And I, and I have people say, well, I, I don't like the people I meet. They're only interested in one thing. 
Well, then maybe fish in a different pond, use a different bait. If you don't like what you're attracting, do something to attract something else. The club is a great place to meet someone to hook up with. But church might be a great place to meet a man or woman of God. Hello? Is your relationship before marriage honoring God? In relationships, everybody focuses on this. I got to find Mr. Right. I got to find Mrs. Right. Focus on what you can control, not the other person, but you. Do you know how hard it is to change you? You do know that, right? How hard it is for you to change, let alone change somebody else. You think you're going to change them? I've actually had a girl say to me, I'm marrying him so I can change him. I went, oh, I don't want to do the wedding now. You're going to be a failure. Focus on becoming the kind of person who has God's love in their heart. Focus on being a person of love and integrity and grace. Marrying the wrong person isn't the biggest problem. Being the wrong person is. Because when you're not becoming the person God called you to be, you'll attract and look for people who are wrong for you. So here's a new game plan. Instead of focusing, fixating on finding the right one, channel your energy into being the right one. That's why Jesus said, look, seek first the kingdom of God and all that other stuff will be given to you. Some of you are still like, is he talking about sex in church? Yeah, this is real talk. Hello? If we can't talk about it here, where can we talk about it? This is where we should talk about it. So way back when, Stu, anyone here like Stu? Anyone here like Stu? Yeah, cold day. There was a, a steamy, steamy bowl of stew brewing for Esau. And to understand what was at stake, stay with me now, we have to go back all the way to Esau's grandpa, who was Abraham, one of the most famous guys in the Bible. His nickname is Father of Faith or just Father Abraham. Ironically, for someone who went down in history as someone known as a dad, Abraham, as his name was known, or Abram, was known, that was his name at the beginning of the story, Abram, and his wife Sarai, they really had a difficult time having kids. To make matters worse, the name Abram meant exalted father. Imagine his embarrassment when he went around saying, hi, my name is Exalted Father, and people going, how many kids you have? None. And he had none in a culture that equated a barren womb with the judgment of God. That would be like having the unfortunate name of Anthony Weiner and then being caught up in a sexing scandal. Remember him? <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. You got the wrong name for that one, buddy. <laughs> That's 11 o'clock only joke. <laughs> Abraham, or Abram and Sarai, grew old and eventually gave up on the idea of having a family. He accepted that his servant, Eliezer, was going to be the beneficiary of his considerable estate. Then God showed up with this amazing, sort of ridiculous promise Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have so many descendants that they'll outnumber the stars in the sky. And out of your family will come great nations. And through those nations, a king will be born, that would be Jesus, who's going to bless the whole world. So from you is going to come numerous descendants and Jesus. Wow. And eventually Messiah would come from Abraham. He would crush the head of the devil. We just sang about him. His name was Jesus. As insanely, as improbable, as bizarre as it is to hear such a thing, Abram believed God on the spot. Like, just, I believe you, God. 
And the scripture says that it counted to him as righteousness. He's living right. In other words, God put an umbrella of grace over Abraham's life. And from that moment, not one drop of wrath would fall upon Abram. And that's faith, by the way, triggering grace by taking God at his word. Latching onto the words that come out of God's mouth and saying no ifs and buts. In this ancient story, Abraham modeled for us what God has asked from each of us from the beginning, which is faith. And we mistakenly believe that heaven is based on doing something. i got to do so much to get to heaven. But it's actually based on just believing something, God's promises. And there's an author and pastor, Jensen Franklin, who put it this way, you don't get good to get God. You get God to get good. I like that. So it's not about what you can do. It's about believing what God did and will do. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, perhaps one of the most important passages in all the Scripture, says that we are saved, right, by grace through faith. So Abraham's experience became the prototype for how we are, quote, saved. And when I say saved, I don't mean just a ticket to heaven. I mean accepting that Christ can live in your heart and you can have an abundant life here today. So when God told this to Abraham, I like to imagine that Abraham went into his tent, put on a little drake, chilled a bottle of champagne, and gave Sarah a, you know, a big thing of roses. And she's like, what's this? And it's romance. We're going to have kids. But they didn't have a baby. Years went by. It almost seemed like God had forgotten them. And God had failed to keep his word. But again and again, God reminded Abraham of his promise. And God went even so far as to change Abraham or Abram's name back to Abraham, which means father of many nations, and Sarai's name to Sarah. At this point, at this point, still no kids, Abraham was 99 years old, and Sarah was about 90. Speaking of it afterward, the book of Hebrews says God waited until Abraham's body was, quote, as good as dead. Hebrews eleven twelve. In case you're wondering, this is not a compliment. I don't imagine too many Tinder profiles have this going on. Hi, my name's Jim. I'm an accountant. I like cooking and going camping, and my body's as good as dead. Swipe right for a good time. But once it went several levels beyond impossible, right, they're really old, bodies as good as dead, God intervened. And, of course, the side note is it's not over till it's over, and even then God can add extra time onto the clock. So then we get to Mr. Harry and the heel catcher. The stork finally shows up, and it wasn't clean and tidy by any means, and there was a lapse of faith when Abraham and Sarah had a baby with a surrogate and thinking God needed help, but he didn't. And in God's impossible time, Abraham and Sarah conceived, and they named their baby boy Isaac, which means laughter, because when God told them they'd have a baby at their age, they laughed. And I'm sure this geriatric couple got plenty of laughs as they pushed a stroller while they themselves were in their wheelchairs. Isaac, their son, grew up and married Rebecca who was a wonderful girl with a nose ring. That's right, the Bible says she had a nose ring. So some of you are like, I shouldn't have a nose ring, it's not biblical. Actually, it's biblical. For all you young girls that get a nose ring, you can send a little bit of thank you note and put a little extra in the plate. (laughs) 
after Rebecca struggled with infertility for herself for 20 years, <clears throat> Isaac and her finally got pregnant. Only this was a buy one, get one sort of free deal because they had twins. And this is where it gets tricky and murky. There was a forked branch in the family tree. God's promise was to Abraham that through you and all, all the people, all the seed of the earth will be blessed through you. And after God made it clear to his blessing that it was to go to Isaac and not Ishmael, it was easy to identify who God's chosen people were. But now, with two twins being born, there's two candidates for God's blessings, and there's some question as to who would inherit it. From an ancient historical biblical perspective, the mantle, right, the firstborn gets all the benefits. So whichever twin came out first would take the lion's share of grandfather Abraham's promise into the future. The due date finally arrived, and first out was the hairy baby whom they named Esau. And it's a creative name in the original Hebrew, which means Harry. Now, some of you might know people that are named Harry, H-A-R-R-Y, but this literally is H-A-I-R-Y, Harry. The second baby was born holding on to Chewbacca's foot, and they called him Heel Catcher. And we know him today as Jacob. Now, the two couldn't have possibly been more different. Esau was a man's man. Esau was a skillful hunter. He was a man of the field. He had a beard. He was tough. He was rugged. Jacob was a mild man dwelling in the tents. Genesis 25, 27. This just to give you a little image, uh, Esau was like pro-bath shop. Jacob was more William Sonoma. <laughs> Esau liked to cover himself in elk urine and go hunting. Jacob sat around customizing his blue apron orders and drinking espresso with mom. They didn't have a whole lot in common, except they both wanted dad's attention. You won't believe what happened next. Genesis 25, 29 through 30. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. Now why does the text tell us that? He was weary. Because there's a thing that happens. When you get weary, you do not make good decisions. There's a statement in AA in the 12-step group that says, halt when you're hungry, you're angry, lonely, or tired. Don't make any decisions. Because guess what? You'll make the wrong one. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with some of this same bread too, for I'm weary. Now the men had spent the afternoon each doing what they liked best. Esau had been out trying to kill wild animals, and Jacob had loafed around the house, tweeting out and trying a new recipe from some bean soup recipe that he found on Pinterest. And when Esau arrived in the tent exhausted and starving, the whole place smelled like this bubbling pot of deliciousness that his homebody brother was cooking. And the scene, I, I, you remember Looney Tunes growing up? Do you remember when, when, when like they would get a smell that would come to their nostril and it would lift up their nostrils? That's what's going on here, right? Esau's like, ah. 
And I can just imagine Jacob with his little apron on, pulling out a little steaming tray of biscuits in front of a drooling Esau and saying, matter-of-factly, okay, you want to eat? Sell me your birthright as of this day. Now, I should pause here because when I say birthright to 21st century Americans, you're like, I don't know what that means. doesn't really ring a bell. But selling your birthright was a huge deal. And I'll give you some explanation. As the name suggests, the birthright belonged to the firstborn male. And that firstborn male, you know, Mr. Harry, gives him three things. First, it gave him a double portion of the inheritance. So it caused the firstborn to be seen in the will as actually two sons. So the firstborn, the hairy one here, would get two-thirds of the estate that dad left behind in the will, and the other sibling would just get one-third. So sell me that for a bowl of stew. Hmm? Second thing they got was a leadership role, okay? The firstborn became the uh, chief executive officer. They're the executor of the will, if you will. In the event of a disagreement or how things should be done, that person had the deciding vote. Brothers and sisters had to defer. Is this making sense? And then lastly and most significantly, they got a spiritual blessing. They acted as the priest of the home. In Abraham's family, this would mean receiving the promise from God, and that would mean the chosen people would come from you and ultimately the Messiah. So you're the twin from which all the other people will come. In other words, having the birthright was a really, really big deal. And because Esau was born first, no one could pry it out of his fingers. He'd have to give it away or sell it. So keep that in mind as you picture Jacob saying, if you give me your birthright, I'll totally let you have some stew. I'll probably throw in some biscuits. Now, I'm sure this proposition seems ridiculous. If it does, say amen. It does seem ridiculous. But by the way, it's always easy to know how other people should respond to their temptations because we aren't the ones standing there lightheaded and with low blood sugar smelling the stew on the fire. It's always easier to judge somebody who falls into temptation that's different than you that you don't struggle with, right? Oh, okay. I guess not for this church. I'm preaching to the wrong crowd, obviously. Esau should have been outraged by this offer. He should have swiped left so fast it made Jacob's head spin. He should have thrown his hands up in the air and said, are you kidding me? Are you nuts? Sell my birthright for a bowl of stew? You want me to trade all that God wants to do in my life for generations from now on for a bowl of stew? And Jacob's like, yeah. Pastor Anthony Stanley preached on this text. It's a great sermon. And he said that if Esau could have called a timeout, he would have made a better decision. Oftentimes, if you're in temptation, what you need to do it's called timeout. This is why, like, my wife and I have built ground rules around this. Like, my wife and I, we do not have discussions that could potentially be divisive over mealtime. Why? Because we're hungry, and we're like two-year-olds when we're hungry. At least she is. <laughs> well, me too. We're, and also, we do not have any potentially divisive discussions. Discussions, if it's close to 9 o'clock, like 8.55 last night, Renee's like, oh, sorry, 8.55, we'll have to tell people this till later. Because when we're tired, we say things we don't mean. 
when you're having conflict or temptation, you want to be at your very best. So, interestingly enough, think about how God is going to introduce himself from here on out to ultra-significant people in the Bible, specifically like Moses. It was supposed to read like this, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But if you're familiar with Scripture, Esau made this deal with his brother, so then it became, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here's what I want to say. God always gives us a way out of temptation, but the key is to slow down, right? If you're going 100 miles per hour on the highway, you can't see the exit called get off here. You just keep on going. Does it make sense? God always gives a way of escape when we're tempted. But Esau took no time to think about introductions or chosen people or double portions. All he could think about was his appetite and how delicious this stew would taste as it passed briefly through his mouth. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Translation, I'm starving now, and I'll probably die if I don't eat this food, so what good is the promise of what I might get someday? So let's be clear, Esau was not starving to death. Maybe he was really, really hungry. He'd said, please. But Esau's response is hyperbole at best. In this moment, nothing mattered more to him than a full stomach, and so he reaches this point of no return, as everybody does in temptation. Red pill, blue pill, swipe left, swipe right. Two options were on the table. Would you like this meal right now, or would you like to see God do great things through you, through your life down the road? Genesis 25, 30 through 34, then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way, and then Esau despised his birthright. Esau chose the stew. Just like that, he traded his calling for a can of Campbell's. He gave up his inheritance for something that made him feel good for a night. Aren't you glad people don't do this today? I mean, you never hear about this happening today, of course. <laughs> it's funny, I remember my mom, she was not afraid to give my sister sex ed. She didn't like talking to me. Apparently, I don't know, I don't know, maybe it's because I was a guy, I don't know. She was like, that's your father's job. But anyhow, uh, my mom would talk to my sisters, and I remember my sisters, and I was really close to Jane because we're only, I mean, we're like 14 months apart, really close. And so she'd always stand there and, and say to my sisters about sexuality, why should some guy buy the cow when he can get the milk for free? You ever hear that when you're growing up? Yeah, man, I remember that. If all you care about is your appetite, and you're led by your appetites in life, and you have no check on your appetites, right? John Mellencamp's great song about that called Check It Out. Great song. If, if all that you're led by is your appetites, then you are going to get hooked just like a fish. Paul actually talked about this. Um, Paul said, Paul warned the church of Philippi that Esau's God was his belly, and it led to his destruction in Philippians 3.19. His highest good was to feel good. But the next morning, right, the next morning, guess what? Esau woke up, and he was hungry again. 
Within 24 hours, he had digested and eliminated the meal that he just had to have. And in the end, he lost everything. And because hindsight is 2020 and the fog is cleared and the dust is settled, you and I can sit here and shake our heads at Esau for being so short-sighted. But that's what temptation does. It blinds us to the future and tempts us to sell big dreams for small desires. But when you're hungry or tired or stressed, it's not a good time to wrestle with temptation. So what do you have to do? First, recognize when something is a pineapple and when it's not. Is this sacred ground? Does God care what I do here? Does it involve giving myself away in a way that I can't take back? Am I giving away free milk? You're not a fish. You're not a collection of appetites. You're a child of God. And then proceed with caution. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless, Proverbs says. So it's common sense that, hey, if you don't want to get stung, stay away from the bees. If you don't want to get burned, don't get too close to the fire. If you don't want to fall off a cliff, don't hang on to the ledge. But what do we like to do? Well, let me just dance around the fire a little bit closer. I haven't been back to Costa Rica, but I'll go. And I'm not having any more pina coladas. The goal is not to see how close you get to temptation, but rather how far you can. And you might think you can handle temptation, but you need someone to hold you accountable. And this is, this is the beauty of 12-step programs. They have the thing called a sponsor. You know what? Every Christian needs a sponsor. You need someone you can call and someone you can say, you know what? I'm really struggling right now. Can you, can you just stay with me on the phone until this passes? Can you help me avoid this? Can you help me become a better person? Can you pray with me? Can you hold me accountable? The Bible says you should run from temptation. Psalm 119, I pondered the direction of my life and I turned and I turned, right? I did a U-turn and I followed your laws. So if you have to physically remove yourself, that means physically remove yourself. When Potiphar's wife tempted Joseph, right, it actually says he left his coat and split. Sometimes you got to leave your coat. Run from it. Change your channel. Read the Bible. Call a Christian friend. Do something to break the spell. And here's some practical advice. Don't ever try to argue with the devil. You're going to lose every time, right? Have you ever noticed that? How many of you here have broken a diet? Anyone here? You ever notice like the seventh donut goes down way easier than the first? Oh, this is really good. (laughs) I've blown it. I might as well really blow it, right? Is this me? Okay. I'm glad you all let me preach to myself today. Quit driving past the ship leaves. Come on. There's another route you can take. So this was just the introduction to this theme. We're actually going to dive into some deeper temptations than the physical uh, over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about temptations we have with our mouths. We're going to talk about temptations that Jesus might have had to resist God's calling and how that applies to your life. Pineapples are everywhere. $3 at H-E-B, they're everywhere. And just remember that somewhere in some kitchen, there's a big simmering pot of stew that the devil will serve up to you just at the right time, and it will be just as tempting to you as it was to Esau. And when that day comes, whatever's being asked of you in return for a taste will seem so far off and so uncertain that all you'll be able to think of is how delicious and how happy that stew will make you in that moment. And if you're not careful, and you don't keep a cool head and slow down, you're going to be tempted to take a bite. 
So let's pray. God of grace, we give thanks that uh, we can come to this place and speak honestly about the issues that are real, issues that we might even struggle with in a non-judgmental way. And we give thanks, Lord, uh, that Jesus, we know, was tempted in every way that we are, but never gave into that temptation, but understands our struggle and understands the things that we go through. Father, we recognize that there are all kinds of pots of stew that come in front of us, and we recognize the culture today around sexuality is like pineapples. That doesn't make it right. That means we can live differently and be differently as your children, as your people. And Lord, we recognize for all the times that we have failed, for all the times that we've not resisted that bowl of stew, for all the times that we have let small desires get in the way of your dreams for our life, we confess those. And we recognize that there is mercy and grace and forgiveness and even a clean slate and a chance to begin again because of what Jesus has done for us. And to symbolize that and to talk about that, Jesus took bread one night on the last night he was with us and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is going to be broken for the times that you fail the times you give into temptation and for the times that you are less than what God called you to be, take and receive the body of Christ. And then Jesus again returned thanks and he poured wine into a cup and he said, drink from this all of you. This is the cup of forgiveness and mercy and new life and salvation and new beginnings and a clean etch-a-sketch and a clean slate. Do this and drink this in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and juice. Make them be for us, the body and blood of Christ, that we might live in this world as the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who taught us, as we say now together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. The night is kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand on this last song and praise God.